Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers, the show where I shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are and why they do what they do. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I know I say this every week, but it's true. I'm so glad you're here, tuning in and doing this life thing with me. And hey, if you're here, tuning in week after week, you must love the show. So if you don't already subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, please take a moment to do that and also leave a rating. Tell a friend, tag a friend. Hey, spread the word, spread the love. This week on the show, I'm very excited to share my chat with Veronica Beach, who is currently the head of production at Pereira Odell, a bi-coastal ad agency. She's probably one of the first strict ad agency producers we've had on the show. So she has a very unique perspective and unique trajectory, like most producers. Also shines a light on a very different side of the business and of the umbrella that is producing. She has over 20 years of producing experience specializing in advertising production. She has produced some of the most viewed and famous campaigns historically over her career, as well as won over 100 Cannes Lions and other multiple awards. She came into my life in 2012, actually, when I was raising finishing funds for my feature doc, Autism and Love. The subject touched her so deeply, she corralled all of her industry contacts to help us raise a huge chunk of money to inevitably finish the film. She was one of those angels that was put on my path and helped me stay the course. And that movie went on to be my first feature, you know, and helped open so many doors for my own career. And one of those tiny seeds that was planted that allows me to be here today, sharing some of that wisdom and guidance with you, my dear listener. When we intersected, Veronica was at David the Agency, where she was a founding member and global head of production for over eight years. This stint challenged her on many fronts, including a move to Sao Paulo, Brazil, my hometown, as y'all know. She had to learn Portuguese and deepen her understanding of culture in Latin America. In the midst of the pandemic, she relaunched Pool House, a platform for producers to connect, share information, resources, and find jobs. Definitely check them out. I'll link them in the show notes. Please note that this episode contains a very candid discussion on trauma, depression, and sexual abuse that begins around the 40-minute mark and lasts for about 10 minutes. So if that is triggering for you, feel free to skip ahead. Veronica destigmatizes mental health issues in the entertainment industry by sharing her own struggles with us. She speaks openly and authentically on how her mental health impacted her life and her career and how dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, helped her heal. If you are struggling with your mental health, please know there's no shame in getting help. That's so much of the show is talking about the struggle, talking about the caca and how we get through it. And sometimes a community isn't enough. You need professional help. So if that's you, please visit makeitokay.org to get some resources and tips for talking about mental health and more. If you or anyone you know is struggling, there is help available anytime. It's free and you can reach a trained volunteer. They did not sponsor this video, but please, if you are in need, reach out. There's also the crisis text line. You can text the word home to 741-741. So without further ado, let's dive in and hear from Veronica. It's really exciting to have you on because of our shared history and how you came into my life. And also because you are, I think, the only person I know who has been seeped in like the agency producing side of things forever. Like almost everyone I know either is like in one lane or jumps around. But it seems like you've really made a career out of staying 
in the agency world, which is fascinating to me. So I definitely want to get into that. But um, I just for the for the listeners want to give them a little context of how you came into my life, just because it was so special. Um, gosh, in 20, let's go with 2012. I don't know if that's the right year, but a long time ago. Uh, we were doing a Kickstarter for the documentary Autism in Love, and we had a very ambitious goal of raising $100,000 to help us with post funds. And we didn't reach our goal, but I remember that somehow you found us, I don't even know how, serendipity, destiny perhaps, and you reached out and you were like, you guys didn't reach your goal, but how can I help? I still want to help. And because of you and your gumption and your contacts, frankly, we were able to put together a silent auction and a fundraiser, an actual physical fundraiser for Autism in Love and and raise a a lot of funds and also get a lot of services donated to the film, to the doc. And it was was a, a big pivot, I think, for our project because it's like we were at that delicate stage of a documentary in its life where if we had not had that push from you, and your contacts and your network and your belief in us and, and that beautiful film, who knows if it would have gotten to where it got, you know, and it was the thing that opened many doors for me in my career. And so it's really special to get to talk to you and share this hour with you and a bit of your journey with the listeners. So thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so you, I'm just so fascinated by like reading your bio and everything you've done so far in your career. Take us to the beginning. Like, how did you discover that producing was even a thing a person could do? I don't know if I necessarily thought it was producing when I was a kid. I think it was more, I think it, I thought it was directing. Like, I knew I liked that piece of it too. And I wanted to make stuff, make films and movies and stories. So like when I was a kid, I mean, I would stay up all night and invent these stories. And like, I mean, I actually, my mom just moved out of her house and I found like the first like treatments I wrote when I was in like, you know, I was like 11 and to nine years old writing treatments. And I was like drawing out who each character was and like what, I mean, no one told me to do that. I was just like, I'm writing a movie in my head that I'm yeah. acting out at night because I don't want to go to sleep. And I want to understand who my characters are. And I was like writing, I was floored when I found this material. Um, so I think it just, I think there was some sort of, as a child, you're just so fascinated with all these movie stars and celebrities. And I think that there was this like fascination with that, but there was also just like, I want to do that. Like, how do I, how do I do that? So, you know, in high school and stuff and growing up, it was kind of always like, I was always in the TV production classes. I mean, I was in TV production class with Willie Geist, who's like, you know, he was like, it was just basically me and him and like two other dudes or something. And like both of us both made it into this, but somehow, I mean, he's really made it. And, um, and, you know, I was always in the drama classes and always in, in performance and, and I was on the newspaper. So I was always in some sort of active way in, in outputting information and and entertaining people. I was in ballet. I was always getting, grabbing my dad's camcorder and putting together little, um, films or shows. I was always dressing my brother up as a girl and directing him. And we had like this piano library room and he would like, I'd put on a show for, I mean, he, he would do whatever I wanted. He's a production designer, by the way, now. And <laughs> so like, you know, it was just a constant 
like that. And I, once I got into college and I went to, you know, a very uh, artsy liberal arts school in Florida, North Florida. Which one was it? It was called Flagler. Mm, It was all nothing to do with anything, you know, (laughs) and I had a TV, um, a TV script writing teacher my senior year who, you know, again, I was on the paper, I was in PR, I was always producing our parties and any events that we were having. So like anything that needed to get done was always sort of like let Veronica do it. Like that even came down to like getting the bills paid in the house I shared with like four other girls. So um, I would handle all of that. And Did you like that? Did you like being the person that others yeah, assumed would always... Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I didn't trust anybody. So. <laughs> like I was the one who went to court, you know, when we got like tickets from the cops for having parties. Like I was the one who would call the police on the police because they were like harassing us. But by- you, you felt like you were wanted to take that upon yourself anyway. It wasn't like others were like, oh, Veronica will do it. She'll handle it. And you're like, guys, like, why is it always me? Like you just already sort of like asserted yourself into that role. It's well, yeah, because I was like, they're just not, it's just never going to be done. Like, yeah. like my, my roommates were all like art students. Like that was never happening. You know, yeah. what I mean? like love yeah. them, super talented. They're all very highly successful right now. <laughs> they were art students. So that was like, and it kind of comes along with, you know, the producer and director role, you know, you're like, I love you. Keep making your art. I'm just going to go like, you know, muscle everybody away so that you can just do your thing. Um, and then, you know, I had this teacher and he, I started doing, you know, writing with him and he was basically like, what are you going to do after school? And I had this like dream. I wanted to work for MTV and move into New York city and, you know, do the whole thing. Um, but I knew that it paid really bad. And I had been trying to find like internships and little entry level jobs and I just couldn't figure it out. And he was basically like, oh, you should move to California. And, and I mean, back then we didn't, I guess we just started getting cell phones and, and, and like emails and stuff, but he just. What year was that? That was in 2000. So no, because like I, yeah, my first cell phone was like, oh five, or or like smartphone rather, I should say, yeah, like where like you could that. map, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's even around anymore. But anyway, he basically gave me the name of this like executive feature film producer in Los Angeles, and I was like, you should go to LA. So went to LA with my girl, my roommate. We like rate, we saved a bunch of money bartending and waitressing that summer. And we rented a uh, U-Haul and we shipped my car and we trailed her car with two cats. And we literally like, not even a joke, but like literally left our boyfriends in the street and waved goodbye to them. And then laughed as we turned the corner and we were like, we're free. Like we literally left our college boyfriends on the street. Like, I would never forget that they were all, they were all like, bye. We're like, bye. We were like, yes. <laughs> Freedom. It was actually, that's actually like a vi- visually a true story. And yeah. they, I have no idea what they're doing. I think they're both still back in St. Augustine. <laughs> to be in the movie version of your life, let's make sure we get the rights to George Michael's freedom for this yeah. scene. So you can be driving away very dramatically. Yeah. So, I mean, Thelma and Louise vibes. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, we got to LA and it was rough. You know, my friends were, you know, graphic designers and stuff. So they were able to get jobs and, you know, entry level types of, you know, at Roxy or surf companies or, you know, that kind of stuff. But for me, I struggled a bit because I wanted to work in film and not really. At that point, I think I kind of knew I wanted to be a producer. I was like, okay, I want to produce. I want to do the deals. Like I want to make it happen. Like at that point, I, I, I had understood and I felt like 
well, the producers kind of like, they're the ones who hold the money. Like they're, they're like the ones who are telling everyone what to do. Like, I think that's fun. And (laughs) um, I think that's like what I want to do. So I um, ended up, you know, really years of hustle. I mean, I started off in the mailroom at Paradigm Talent Agency. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was hell in 2000, like having like, you know, people were like, the agent's assistants were like throwing like scripts at my head and like the back, you know, we were like printing scripts. And, and I would then, when on good days, I got to like sit my lunch, like at the front desk and answer the phones and meet the celebrities and people who would come in. Mm. I, um, I bartended at night at the Whiskey Go-Go. I actually mm-hmm. got the job because I was looking, I was going up and down Sunset Strip trying to find a job and no one was hot, would hire me. And they were really like my girlfriend who I moved out with was like very skinny and cute. And she got a job like that. But I, at the time was not in the cute stage at that time of my <laughs> life. And so I did not, no one wanted to hire me. They were like, yeah. well, be like, so when I walked into the whiskey, it was really, I, I was, went to the front and they, they were closed. And so I didn't really know what the whiskey go-go was. And then I went to the back. And I saw these people outside smoking, like the band, like they were getting ready to go in and like practice their set and get set up. And I was like, oh, do you know if like the manager's here or something? They're like, I'm like, I'm looking for a job. Do you know if they're doing any hiring? And they were like, oh, actually, I think some girl just got fired. Like you should go in there right now. And so I literally walked in and this woman, Tessa, whose grandfather owned the Roxy, was one of the founders of the Roxy, the Rainbow Room and the Whiskey A Go-Go. Wow. His name was Mario Magalari. He it was his da- granddaughter, and Tessa was like, um, "I walked in and I said, hey, 'Hey, I'm looking for a job bartending.' She's like, I have Wednesdays and Sundays free open. Um, can you make a Long Island iced tea?' I'll never forget that. And I was like, yeah. "She's like, <laughs> be here on Sunday, and we'll see if you have a job after that." And I was there for almost a year. Wow. And I would go up um, after my shifts if it was the rainbow, if it wasn't late. And I'd go sit with Mario Magalari up in the little, he had like a little table in the kitchen and he'd give me a pizza and some wine. And he'd tell me all the stories about Jim Morrison and Manson. He kicked Manson out of uh, whiskey one time. Like he told me all these stories. I was young, you know, I was just this little kid and he would just take me and tell me all yeah. these rock stars. And, oh, I was like, obsessed. oh, that's. That's like the most magical time of like the Ellie journey. I think when you first come here and you're still like sparkles in your eyes and like, wow, like all the history of what's happened and where butts have been in seats that you now get to sit. It's, it's a really special time. I, I think it's the struggle is so real at that time, but it's like, I don't know. It's the most, if you survive it, it's just something about it that feels like you earn your stripes, you know? Yeah, it was the struggle. The struggle was real. Though. I was always broke, you know. And um, so I worked in the mailroom and bartended at night for a long time. Yeah. And then I ended up getting an internship with um, Andy Meyer, who did like Breakfast Club. He was like the executive producer on a lot of the John Hughes films, but he wasn't paying me. So I ended up quitting the job at paradigm and I started mm-hmm. working for him full-time like during the days because I just felt like he was a development producer and I felt like that was a really great place to be and he was always trying to sell scripts and didn't do anything really successfully but I had a great time and I, I just picked up extra shifts at the whiskey I started catering I started you know anytime I could get my hands on something that would get me money like whether it was like I started bartending like I was bartending at like a Jewish temple on Wilshire. Yeah. Um, you know, I was catering with these girls. Um, 
Yeah. I, I only remember I had so many jobs. Like I'm You're so- on that hustle. Yeah. I, I remember I too, like when Autism in Love was happening, I was working like for part-time jobs, you know, and producing that doc full time, like, cause there's no, not enough money. So. Oh, I think I was doing sales too for like my dad's first wife's husband. He was like yeah. a trader. So I was doing like sales and they were paying me to deal with like packaging and getting things out. So like, right. I, I had like a million jobs. I feel like it speaks so much to the inherent like producer spirit, right? Where you just have to always be doing so many things to like figure it out, to make ends meet, to get the job done, to make this person happy. Like you just have to constantly, you have to thrive in like juggling and you know juggling multiple plates at the same time and, and knowing you're probably going to drop one and that that it's okay <laughs> you know? yeah it was hard it was hard yeah. it was really but, hard but so then in your bio you talk about how then at 25 you got the experience to produce your first like commercial and you were like fuck like I don't know what I'm doing yeah. so after <laughs> years of struggling and I started getting involved in group 101 spots which was this program that they had out back in the day and it was basically like this D-Not. Um, and she would, she created this program where you had to produce like, I, I think like six commercial, 30 second commercials in six months or something like that. And you, you budget it and they would help you find producers and deals. And, that, and I went in and I was a producer. So I would help these thriving directors, you know, working on weekends and, you know, putting, calling Kodak because it was filmed back then. And, and hey, can you give us a couple rolls of film for free? And, you know, just calling the lighting houses. And, and I, I was like line producing basically. And it was yeah. on a small scale. So it was really fun. And um, I was answering phones at an ad agency at the time. And I still didn't quite, and I had some friends who were, you know, at this point starting to create ad friends and they kept telling me like, you'd probably be like a really good agency producer. You should really think about that. But at that point I was still discovering, I was like, do I want to be a visual effects producer? Do I want to be a post producer? Do I want to stay in film? Like, what do I want to do? And I was answering phones at this ad agency, a small one. And this woman came down, she kept coming down the stairs and she was go outside, smoke, smoke, smoke come back in. She's like on her phone. She was always like husky voice, like really stressed all the time yelling at people on the phone. And she was always getting these like packages with DVDs or tapes actually, probably at that time. And um, I finally said to my friend who worked there, I said, what, what does that woman do? Like just keeps like coming down. And she was like yelling at someone. She's always like, you know, and he was like, oh, she's the agency producer. And I was like, <laughs> And that was it. And so then I, I started really focusing and I found this job as an agency producer. I was like the only producer there. It was like this Sinegers. He was basically a big trailer, uh, like ad agency. So they used to do all the big trailers in the day. And he, I didn't realize this, but they were kind of like on their way out, but they had this like big campaign for game show network and they hired me. And I was like, literally had no idea what I was doing. I figured it out and produced this big campaign for game show network. And I learned so much. And after that, I started my own um, little production company in advertising and it didn't make it. It was called Angel Films, didn't make it. I had a client who didn't pay me the second half of what she owed me. And since it was mm. like just me. Just you, yeah. I had I a to And mm. it didn't declare bankruptcy. It was horrible. It was like the oh. worst, one of the worst moments of my life. My career, I was like young too. I was only 27. And um. I was going to give up and go into pharmaceutical sales, like legitimately. And Carol Lombard, who was the head of production at YNR, had heard about me. 
And she had, um, from like an account person that worked at YNR saying like this poor girl, like she just lost her company and she's now leaving to go be a, a rep, a, like a pharmaceutical rep. And, and uh, Carol called me and went like out of the blue and was just like, you know, um, I heard about you. I'm looking for some agency producers. I'd love for you to come on board. And I'll teach you, like, give it one more chance. Like, before you go out and decide to go into pharmaceuticals, like, why don't you give it one more chance? We're not all that bad. And I was like, okay. And that was it. Never looked back. That was 27 years old. So that was 16 years ago. Wow. So will you define for us, for the listeners, what an agency producer does and how that's different from most types of producers that many are familiar with? I would say the agency producer, if done correctly, is like an executive producer in advertising from like the whole project. So, you know, we are creatives. The creatives come up, they're tasked with the idea. So, you know, if they're doing an idea for Stella or Corona or Burger King, you know, they've come up with the concept, the idea, you know, bad ideas, you know, as a head of production, which I am, you know, we're brought in early to run ballparks, to run, look at the calendars. Can the timing get done right? You know, advise, maybe there's legal things. And then at that point, you know, the job is given to us and we're they're tasked with putting together the team. All right. So we find the directors, we find the musicians, we find the editors, the posts, like we help to carve it. Like, I'll be like, well, maybe we don't want to shoot it this way. Maybe we'd like to shoot it that way. So we come in and it's like, you know, we're a creative partner from a production side. And so most agency producers are very creative and or should be just because they need to have creative solutions, you know? Mm. Um, and from there, we, you know, we, we do, we manage all the calendars, the timelines, the budgets, the, all the vendors, everyone that's swarming around us. Um, we deal with the account teams, the clients, the finance. So there's a lot of responsibilities with just this one role. And then we take the project you know, we hire out the production companies, the directors, all that, and we take it through all the way to the ship. So we, and at least in the United States, we stay highly involved through the entire process. So once I'm on sets, you know, you know, I'm managing the client and I'm also liaisoning with the line producers and the and whatnot on the set. You know, when I get to set, my partner's the line producer. When I get to post, my post producer from the edit house, you know. And so, but at the end of the day, you're the one who holds the card. So even if the client's like, well, I want this, you're like, well, I'm managing your money. So <laughs> you can't have that because you did not pay for that. Or, right. okay, well, let's figure this out. Um, we might need an overage. You might need this. So you're kind of acting as the whole kind of ex- executive producer of the entire project, essentially. If you look at it from like a, trying to understand from maybe a film perspective, that would be kind of the role of an agency producer. Um, and, you know, we produce everything from, you know, a regular TV commercial to a print campaign to a radio spot to content. Now there's so much content that's. Oh, boy. Yeah. And agency producers are typically in house at a specific agency, right? Or is there a oh, world a freelance market? Is there? Okay. Huge. huge. There's a, and, a, a few, a, I would say a couple hundred probably freelancers. And so if in on the freelance side, then is it? Like once the agency has the campaign, they don't, they just, it's kind of similar to how once the job is awarded, then the production company brings on the line producer to oversee the production side for them. Would it be sort of a similar timeline? You guys bring in the agency producer only when you have the job for them, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you're like in my position as a, as a head of production, you know, we're looking at it way ahead. Like I'm right 
const I'm looking out at like a, I'm like air traffic control. So I've got <laughs> a staff that I'm looking at. I mean, you don't want to see, and I'm sure like myself, most heads of production have the same thing. You know, when you look at your chart, you're just like, you know, you're managing all these little planes, which are then all these other producers and their jobs and making sure those jobs are going well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty similar for the producer usually typically comes on when the job starts, but their boss, their head of production or whoever's in charge is in typically much yeah. earlier to help advise till you get to that point. Yeah. And so you had a stint where you were head of global production for David Agency. Mm-hmm. What then does that mean, like to specialize in global production? It's just different, you know, in the sense of like, you're working more internationally. I mean, well, there was two parts to that. One, I was living internationally. I was living in Brazil. Yes. And I was also had offices in Brazil, Argentina, and then eventually Miami. So I was having, um, and a lot of our clients were all over the world. Our clients were all over Europe and all over South America, all over the United States. So there are producers who typically in the US, they just produce typically US work. But if you're producing, I mean, I would say primarily that David, I was like half and half, half US work, half global work. And we had a lot of clients like Coca-Cola, Unilever, um, Burger King, who were global. So like we weren't just managing, let's say, like a U.S. or a local account. We were also managing what needed to be outputted to the entire world. And so you tend to, instead of being like, oh, are we going to shoot in L.A. or New York? You're kind of like, should we shoot in South Africa? Or are we going to shoot in New Zealand? Or we, it's just a larger perspective of like you're kind of country hopping versus like state hopping. And you just have a broader knowledge of like talent buyouts and usages and crews and service companies and how they work and the ins and outs. like. I'm fairly versed in global production at this yeah. point. Yeah. Like, I mean, I that's a, from a global perspective versus a, just a domestic perspective. Yeah. Cause like I, I you were saying, I, I would get like the benefits of the pros and cons of New York, LA or the mark, you know, the major markets here. But when you're a client's coming to you, Coca-Cola's coming to you to do a cool spot for the Latin American, you know, demo, you're like, okay, should we take it to Chile? Should we shoot it in South Africa? Like, it's just crazy. What is the thing that, m- weighs the heaviest in on those decisions or does it just depend is it like creatively how the place looks and how it lends itself to the spot is it how much their dollar or whatever currency is going to stretch to do the thing is it just a a massive sort of puzzle like every time it's always a little it's usually budget so you're kind of basic you know you're looking at it from a budget perspective yeah like where are we going to get the best buyouts but how good and how well is there how how broad is their diversity you know, so then you're like, well, shit, I'm not going to get a lot of diversity in Uruguay. We always like to go to Uruguay. But hey, you know what? I can fly some people in from Brazil and Argentina. So then you kind of look at that. But like, you know, back back in the day, Argentina had some really, at one point, Argentina decided that they wanted to have like their own SAG. So like Argentina was a fire. Like everyone was shooting in Argentina. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And then their unions were like, oh, let's like have a SAG union. And then they created these like really complex like buyouts and all this stuff. And everyone was like, we're not going to Argentina anymore. Right. So then they're, they, they're, their international market of shooting down there just like died. And then, and then everyone's like, well, we'll just go to Uruguay. And then they forgot to write into their thing, like that you can travel Argentine ta- talent out 
and they just have to pay the rate that's in the country you're shooting in. Like versus with SAG, if you travel someone outside of SAG, like the US to go shoot internationally, you still, all SAG still follows you. <laughs> they're like, they're with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they took a huge loss. And um, yeah. I, I believe that their unions have pulled back on a lot of those complex uh, buyouts just because of the loss that they took. Right. Um, just having that kind of knowledge. So it's like when you're producing at a more global scale, you have just that kind of knowledge. You tend to keep more in touch with your global contacts from different countries. So you always like, like I just had a project in Eastern Europe and we were having problems getting product in. And I was like, well, let me call my friends in Poland. These guys, if anyone can get things over the border, it's these guys, you know what I mean? So then I'm like, you know, it's just, you have this different kind of network and you're just, yeah. Grander scale just opens up more doors. And yes, typically it's, budget and location. Yeah. And so then you, but you actually, like you said, you moved to Brazil, you, you set up shop in Sao Paulo. Cause I remember it was right after you and I had met and I was like, so excited slash jelly for you. Um, but what was that time? Like having to adjust to a new culture, a new language on top of doing this insane amount of work that is required. <laughs> it was to so do. hard. <laughs> it was so hard. It was, so, I remember, um, after I produced this like really famous campaign um, sketches, I remember I was like, actually, I think it was like right when I was, it met, like kind of got involved with the autism and love stuff. I was staying at this hotel in Santa Monica. I was shooting or I was there for something. It was always somewhere. And I would, and I remember getting a text message from David Rolfe, who was at that time, like the head of production for BBDO. He's at Facebook now. And he was like, hey, did you produce that spot, dumb sketches? And I was like, yeah. And then he's like, did you, when you moved down to Brazil, did you speak Portuguese? And I was like, no. And all he wrote back was balls. <laughs> like, and I was just like, <laughs> I don't think I, I realized at the time what I was getting myself into. And mm. honestly, I don't know if I would do it again. I really don't. Back then, I was fearless. I was also a major alcoholic. <laughs> and, um, I was just, you know, I was at that crossroads where I really wanted to be ahead of production and I really wanted to have a post abroad. I didn't, I wanted to work outside of the States. I was looking towards London and Amsterdam for language reasons because I know I'm not great with languages and I thought that that would be an easier cultural transition. Mm. I just couldn't, no one wanted me. And then I got, got into this job in Brazil and I was kind of like, let's try it. And my, at my, my, my whole, thing was like if it if I don't like it I can always go home you know I kind of just felt like I have enough friends back in the states that yeah I can figure it out if I'm not happy but I did have like a major panic attack about three days in like yeah I, but you were, you were there for two years right two and a half so okay so you had a panic attack how did you I just kind of because it was just how I do everything I just I just do it. And then I like along the way, I'm kind of like sweeping it up, you know, as I'm going. And I just remember, you know, it was maybe day three and I was coming out of the shower and it kind of, Oh, I remember this wave of fear. It just like hit me. I was like, and I, 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 I got it. I came out of the shower, came out of the bathroom and it was like corporate housing. And I was just like, I kind of just remember like looking around and my cat, I had this great white cat with no ears. His name is Mr. Max. And he just kind of was like looking up at me, like, where the fuck am I? And I looked back at him and I was like, we're in Brazil. And I just like hit the back of the wall and just slid all the way down to the floor. Started crying so hard. Like the whole, like 
emotional breakdown. And then I cleaned myself up and I said to myself, okay, no more tears, you're here. And then I never cried again. Like that was it. I never, I just needed that like kind of like, and then I, you know, I ended up really enjoying it. It was really hard though. I mean, you're in, in San Paolo, as you know, like they, people don't speak English. So it's not like, it's like you go into these big companies like Ogilvy and and whatnot, you're definitely going to find like 80% of the people speak English because everyone goes to English school and German school. And, and that's important to the education down there. Um, But when you go to the gas station, you go get to get your nails done, your hair done. Mm -hmm. The general public does not speak English. They will try as a culture. Um, I remember the first time I like, you know, it's my days were hard because I was dealing with just different processes and cultures and I'm as a New Yorker, so New Yorkers are just kind of like, hey, I want this done. You need to get this fucking done. And Brazilians, there's a dance. So right. It's to, like, yeah. <laughs> to the bay? To the yeah. Like, to I would tell my producers, like, I would say, like, okay, we have a meeting today at 10. And I'd be like, all right, like, call me when everyone's done with their fucking coffees and, like, kisses and, like, the whole thing. Because that would take, like, 20 minutes, you know? Yeah, um, so yeah. Like, I don't have time for this. And so then like, but I didn't want to be rude either. So I'd say like, call me when everyone's like, or text me when everyone's kind of like getting ready to slow down. And I come in and be like, hi, hi, hi. And then, you know. Let's get to it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But there was a dance um, culturally, you know, it it was never straightforward. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Never like, and I would come in and I'd just be like, try to cut through it. Because I couldn't mm. deal with the circles anymore. And that, you know, I hit a lot of walls by doing that, but I also was able to get a lot of stuff done. And I, but I ruffled feathers and it changed me as a person because um, I became difficult for, because I was difficult for the Brazilians, you know, because of my having to get things done in the way that I was working. And then I began to believe that. Hmm. Does that make sense? So like I was always in the States. I was like, you know, I was this producer is going to get it done. And everyone was, oh, this is great. She's going to come in and blah, blah, blah. But I became difficult there. And then I began to believe it. And that was probably the beginning of the end for me. (laughs) Yeah. So I hit a lot of walls. It was the hardest thing I've ever, ever done. And, um, and, and yeah, I'm glad I made it and it was extremely successful. Uh, we were successful beyond our expectations from an agency perspective. So, yeah, I mean, you won like over a hundred lions, right? Which, uh, we speak a little bit about what that is. I understand it sort of on a surface level, yeah. but I don't know, like I obviously know can, but I don't know how it works with the agency side of things, how you get nominated. Do you have to like campaign? It's a similar, it's, a, you know, like you have yeah. to submit your work, you know, into yeah. different categories. And then we have juries that then judge the work, you know, in each room from film craft to, you know, strategy to PR, you know, so it's the whole thing. It's, it's similar, but different. It yeah. has the same weight though, as the Confed film festival, it has the same weight. I, in fact, I think some of the names are very similar as mm. far as the awards are. Um, concerned uh and then it's you know and we have the you know the grand prix and the titaniums and all the, the and then you get like agencies of of the year but you're competing on a global scale so you're you are competing yeah. tens and hundreds of thousands of work 
Right. So then to have over 100, one would say that's pretty impressive. Not normal, put it that way. <laughs> is that how much of that is your doing? Like your, um, your magic fingers behind the we're scenes? We're all a team. So mm-hmm. start with that. Um, the ideas were always there. Um, but, you know, an idea is 30%, 70% is execution. That's right. So, you know, you look at the idea and I've watched so much, so many commercials, even films. And you're like, the idea there is great, but the way they executed this or whoever drafted this or whoever cut this or whoever colored this, like, doesn't work, you know? Um, So if you think about it like that, you know, the idea is important, but the execution is really important. Right. So to bat 100 is pretty pretty impressive. I mean, how did that, how, how, how is it that having those accolades and other awards you've won, how does that change things for you personally, but then also with the perception that the industry now has of you? It's like a, a, a gift and a curse, you know, at the same time, you know, it, there's a lot of pressure that was, that I felt to mm-hmm. achieve those awards every year. You know, when CAM would be over, my bosses would say, okay, today is day one again. And the amount of pressure each year that we needed to win. I like to win in general. Like as a human, I'm like, I don't, you know, I have failed. Believe me, I failed with my first company. I fail on a lot of things. I mean, a lot. I'm not afraid to fail. um, But the pressure to win was enormous. And so everything was looked at, every project, every idea that came through, comes through, is looked at from, was looked at from that perspective. Like, mm. could we go to con? is this a good idea? Is this a winnable idea? And, you know, that just puts a lot of pressure on top of already a lot of pressure because you're sailing brand work, you're trying to hit strategy, you're trying to deal with multiple personalities and manage people. So it became overwhelming. And so I don't know if I ever really... I enjoy it now. I did not enjoy it then. Mm. Um, I was overwhelmed. I always wanted to win like one lion. Like that was like my goal. And that's like a normal and realistic goal. (laughs) Um, And, you know, all the work, a lot of the work was I've produced directly, um, especially in the beginning. So maybe like the first 60 or 70 you know, were mm. results of like campaigns. I was extremely hands-on and on, if not shot myself. The others were more like I was, you know, head of production and I was in and out of it, helped with the producers, you know, so it was kind of like the rest of it was maybe underneath my, 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 but I mean, yeah. all my producers, I trained, you know, a lot of them I took from college and trained them up. So it was, yeah, I didn't really have a luxury because I was in Brazil and Argentina to find the type of producers I was looking for. So I actually had to train a lot of them from scratch. And even when they might move to Miami, same thing. So um, a lot of people didn't want to move to Miami. So I kind of had to like really start again. Yeah. Start again. yeah. Um, um, you said something that I find really interesting that, you know, you, you used to be fearless and now like you said you're not afraid of failure, but then that there was a shift for you where you felt like maybe you were a little more fearless and now perhaps that isn't the case so much. Will you speak a little to that? Because I think, you know, to succeed like you have, like you said, it does come with quite a bit of failure. Like it just has to unless you're a robot or something. Um, but then what what it means to be fearless and, and actually failing, I think those are separate things, right? I mean... I am still 
pretty fearless, to be honest. Um, I just am, I think, slightly more aware of consequences than Mm. I was back then. You know what I mean? Because I think I look at it more like it's a different kind of consequence. Back then I was, you know, in my mid thirties and I was younger and like, you know, I just saw I had time. Like now I'm at a point where I'm, you know, I'm looking at my career and like agency producers, they burn out pretty quick, you know, heads of production and stuff like that. Yeah. You, know, you know, it's, it's a really stressful job, you know, as, as an executive producer in film and stuff, you know, you move into areas where you're just negotiating deals and you're finding the fundraising and the money. And it just, it's, it's still stressful, but we're so integrated in every single process of the lines yeah. that it is. And plus you have all these brand pressure on top of it. Right. So I think I look at my, I, I, I'm still fearless. I, I will go for it hundred percent, but like, I'm more look at things also from a consequence perspective pertaining to my personal life. You know, like I have a, I'm in a, I wasn't in a loving and deep relationship back then. I Mm. also had, you know, issues with alcoholism and depression, you know, now I'm in a healthy place and I have a loving relationship. So I might look at something a little different and go, well, is that going to impact my relationship or my, my safe, healthy life that I live now. Yeah. Yeah. So that I, I don't know if I don't want to say I was more reckless back then. Maybe that's more what it was. I'm still fearless, but I will look at a consequence and be like, well, if I like taking this new job, I just accepted one of the reasons why I didn't want to get another full-time job was because, well, first I, my old company that I helped found was like, so special to me. So like, I just didn't feel like anything could ever come close to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I live in multiple places, my boyfriend with my boyfriend. So I want flexibility to be able to move around. And so looking at this new job, I had to kind of like sit down with him and like make those decisions versus in like back in the day, eight years ago, when I revived almost nine, when I went to Brazil, that's a decision I can make. I didn't hurting anybody. It was all me you know, now it's other things are involved and I kind of have to have an outlook and be like, well, it sounds like a a priority reshifting of priorities. Right. And then like honoring how you want to have different parts of your life also be fulfilled. That isn't just the work. I think a lot of people after doing, you know, over 50 episodes of this show, there is like, no matter where you end up in the discipline, like there is a similar, like DNA that all these women have who are sort of like mesmerized by doing this kind of work. And it does often come with just balls to the walls, go after the thing at all expenses of your health, of your relationships, of other things, of motherhood, if that's something you want, you know, of all of that. And then you kind of hit a point where the brakes, you hit the brakes, whether you do it yourself or the universe conspires to force you to break, like in your case, and you go, holy shit, like, I blinked and I've been doing this for 20 years or 15 years. Is this where I want to go? Like what else is important to me? Because there's got to be that like realization that sort of like save the cat moment in every movie, you know? So um, it sounds like that's what you're describing. And I, I mean, you've been so public with your story and your mental health issues, which I think is incredible and brave, obviously, but not often discussed in our field, particularly as producers, the tremendous stress that it, it it is you know the tremendous like 
just energy and output of energy that you constantly have to give. And not many producers coming up, I, I would see that and realize, oh, like, who? how are they like helping themselves? Like, are they going home and like crying to their significant other to release the tension of their day or taking a bath? Like, how are they dealing with the tremendous pressure that is this line of work across the board? Because um, a lot of people exactly what you said like it it just it it requires so much of you it requires all of you and it doesn't leave a lot of space for much else and so will you speak about you know you, you call yourself a, a fixer and like when the mental health component of it became what it became and you had to take six months off and take your sabbatical to get better to get healthy yeah I mean it had been coming for a while you know yeah. um it had been coming for a while and I kept trying to do different things. Like I worked my MD at my old agency was also like one of my closest friends. So I was able to confide in him about like my, how I was doing. And, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I was starting to get, I would say like suicidal ideation is what they call people with depression. It's like, you're not really going to commit suicide, but like, maybe you could, but like, you're not like most people who commit suicide, just kind of like wake up and do it. You know, like, I don't mean to say it like that, but they just, they just go. They commit. Um, Yeah. Yeah. They commit. Um, so I started feeling that like when I was coming out of Brazil and back into the transition into Miami, I think I was kind of like, Oh shit. Well now I'm in my late thirties. Like I just gave all this time to this company. Like I haven't met anyone like I, but I, I I just was kind of like overwhelmed with coming back. It was a transition to come back into the States and I didn't really want to be in Miami. It wasn't a place that I had on my list (laughs) at all. And uh, I really wanted to go back to like New York or LA or London. Like I didn't want to go there. I didn't have like roots there whatsoever. And um, so it had kind of started there and I tried everything. I mean, I went to, I was doing my yoga. I started working at the office only four days a week. And on Fridays I would work from home. I was, you know, therapy, um, Chinese herbs, uh, meditation. <laughs> I mean, you name it. I had, I was doing, I knew I needed help. Um, but I also wasn't, um, ready for, I think a, a deeper thing. And, uh, basically I was just, I was just not okay. You know, like I, yeah. I was getting to a point where like, you know, my attitude was affecting my attitude. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I was not happy. I was I remember just be sitting at my desk working and like tears just coming down my eyes. Like all the time I was always, I I didn't want to get out of bed weekends. I was like home and I wouldn't get out of bed for the weekends. It was, it was getting really bad. And my, I leading like that six months or something before I was really dropping like fast. My old bosses had left the agency. They had resigned and they were the founders and they resigned and they were going to start their new agency because my agency would fell under like a a holding company and it broke me. It, that was the final break because I had given these guys everything. I moved to Brazil for them, you know, like for their dream. And it broke me. Absolutely. And, um, but they weren't the reason why, like I had endured horrific sexual abuse, um, since I was 19 years old. Uh, my older brother, a half brother had molested me 
Um, I had remembered a few years earlier once I started getting sober. Um, I had been raped a few times in the industry. I had been sexually harassed. Um, I'd gone through just horrific things that no woman, human should have to go through on that front. And a lot of it was, I had, you know, suppressed it. And, um, and then I also had, you know, some tragedy, tragedy in my family. When I was young, my sister died when I was six years old. My family kept it from me for a year. My father lost everything when I was 12. So like there had been, you know, a lot of shit that had just happened to me personally. And I just kept like burying it. (laughs) Just like, oh, let's put another pile of sand on that and just keep it. I was working and I was doing so well and it was what distracted me. And so I just literally started to like, it's like the plane was full and then it started running out of gas. And I was like nose diving. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to quit. Like, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm burned out. Like I got to get the fuck out of here. And like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. And my boyfriend and I had broken up and I was, you know, and I started looking into some treatment and uh, basically I started looking into some treatment and I found out my my company insurance recovery. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go take advantage of this. That's why the shit's here. (laughs) And then I talked to my friends about it and my family and everyone was very supportive and everyone wanted me to keep it quiet and just like go do what I needed to do. And I was like, "Mm, as usual, going to do whatever I wanted. And I felt like I wanted to control my story. I didn't want people gossiping about me or having the wrong information. And, and I think that comes from just like years and years of like, PR, (laughs) yeah, working with the biggest PR agencies in the world and like on brand work. And you're just kind of like control your story. Like, don't, like, don't leave it for people to. And then I started thinking like, well, maybe I can help someone. Like maybe if I say that this is what's happening to me, then somebody else. So I left, I went to a treatment center for depression and, and, um, in Malibu, I ate my house burned down when I was there. So I was there during the Malibu fire. So I brought all my stuff out there and then the house burned down. So that was like my whole life basically burned to the ground in the middle of like the worst moments of like self-realization. But it was very interesting. I worked on, um, I was an intense trauma therapy EMDR um, because they realized that my depression really was a result of trauma. And right. so I did really intense that of that. Um, I created like lifelines with my therapist where we like went through every five years and like talked about like the things that like I would identify each year what happened. And it was really interesting because I started to see the track, like the, the, the cycles. So it was like, you know, my sister dies, then my dad loses everything. I start to go in the closet. That was like my isolating. Like I was like, come home and like go in the closet. And like, that was like my magic world. You know, I started writing and then it was like, Oh, my brother molested me. I started drinking. Oh, then I started drinking heavier because this happened. Then I was raped and I started drinking heavier. And then I started doing, and it just kind of like you watch this. And I remember just sitting there, it was on a butcher paper with my lead therapist, who was like my day-to-day therapist at the, that they assigned to me. And we were just like, wow. Like, I was like, I bet there's some shit, man. <laughs> it was like, yes, you have. And like, it was like, I finally was like, oh my God, this is all valid. I'm not difficult. I went through some shit that I did not ask for. You know, I am not emotional. Like I've been through some crap. Like you go get raped by your, or molested by your brother 
And then you come tell me how you're going to act, sir, you know, <laughs> sister, man, who's calling me emotional, like, right. yeah. you know, and you start, it just like validated everything that alone took like a huge weight off my shoulders Yeah, because I was like, fuck these people who would say these things to me, like, fuck you guys, guys, fuck you guys. And, um, I woke up. And I was like, I am a good fucking person who works really fucking hard. Yeah. And I didn't didn't deserve any of that. And I was a survivor. And then once that happened and I was able to talk about it and like get through all of that, um, I got into a program called Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which is DBT. It was actually founded from people with bipolar, but they found that it really helped people who didn't have like um, coping skills and stuff with heavy depression and trauma and stuff like that. So I started working in that and that has been like my saving grace. I still do do DBT every two weeks. It gives me skills of mindfulness, of um, pausing, stopping, like so react. It's like responding versus reacting kind of stuff. And, you know, it helps me to be like, okay, my reasonable mind, here's my emotional mind. And I want to be in my wise mind. So and I keep yeah. notes. If you see my desk, there's notes that says like, I'm listening to understand then to respond. That's a note I have right here. We and all should take that advice. <laughs> so it was my lifesaver. And yeah. um, I recommend anyone who is suffering with depression and trauma to, to go get the help that you need. There's no shame in asking for help it saved my life. Yeah. I think it's so brave that there's such a stigma on mental health, right? As we know, and it's been getting better, I think throughout the years, but especially in in our industry, it was like that for a long time. Oh, you keep it on the DL. You don't want people to know. You don't want, like nobody wants to know the consequences of the work or whatever, what is required of you. And so I think it's you know, not you probably know this, you don't need me to validate your life choices. But I think it's wonderful that you chose the harder path, but your path, the path of truth, you know, where you were going to control you're the narrative of what has happened to you and that it is okay to seek help that you can come out the other side stronger. And here you are, you know, you're back, sort of on the horse, you're back working in, in a in the similar fields that you were in, like you can go get help, take a pause and still kind of get back on it. I had another producer on the show once tell me, she's like, you know, you can kind of, you don't have to always be pedaling so fast on the bike. Sometimes you can just coast and enjoy the fucking ride and look at the view. And sometimes it's okay to get off the bike for two years and then just go do something else and then get right back on the bike. Like it's totally fine to do that. And she's like, and that's the thing that no one tells you because they put fear in you that if you stop the rat race, like you'll never be able to get back in for whatever reasons you may have mental health, you want to take a pause for other things in your life, a family, whatever, like, and that has really stuck with me. And so I think hearing your story and and just what you've gone through and how brave you are, like I said, and sharing all of that, um, I don't know, it's, it's wonderful. And I thank you for that. I, I think it's, we need more honesty and transparency because it is, it is difficult to exist as a human and then to be in fields that are so demanding um, where we do self-medicate sometimes. I think uh, a lot of people can probably identify with that, especially uh, after this pandemic and how I think it's shifted so much for so many people and also really had made us have to reckon with 
priorities. You know, what what is it that, what is life? Like if everything can be stopped like it had this year, what then is important to you? Um, and I think it brings all of that into full focus. And so I, yeah, I mean, that's all I have to say on that front. Like, thank you for, for sharing that so candidly. But, I, you know, obviously challenges aside, you're still here, you're still crushing it, you're thriving, still kicking ass, of course, on your own terms. And you're now head of production at a new a new company. And you have pool house, which I really want to get into. Um, LinkedIn says you've been doing that for 15 years. So I'd love to hear how that's evolved into what pool house has become. Um, but yeah, so talk a little bit about that after this massive pause and shift to heal, kind of getting back into the field. Well, I came back and I went back to my old agency because I thought it was important. I wanted to also know what it would be like to work there healthy. That mm-hmm. was interesting. Um, and I, I, I was happy to be back, but it wasn't the same place. You know, you, yeah. you look around and you're like, mm, we've been through like phase one, phase two, phase three. Like I'm not part of phase three. And that's not like a bad thing. It's just kind of like, this isn't a place I help build anymore. And, and yeah. it's for you know, everyone else, like it's at someone else's time. So I think, I think it was the right time to kind of bow out. And I had, you know, pool house was just an organic, um, uh, collective that I had kind of created, you know, years and years and years ago in like 2007, six or something like that. And it was just a bunch of freelance agency producers. Cause we we're all freelance. And we would communicate on Yahoo groups and we'd help each other with jobs, like referring each other. And they're like, Hey, I'm going to need a comedy director. Who do you like? You know, we shared information and we work it worked for that long. And I was like, you know, why don't I do something a little bit different with it? Like why not relaunch it, but like more open for all producers, any kind of producer that wanted to be part of it, you know? And so we relaunched in um, in June or J- July, I think July, I can't remember. And um, we, we launched with that outlook of it. And it's been good. It's not been as successful as like my hope has, but I think that we tried to be a little too broad. You know, I think kind of going into it for all producers and all these different chat rooms and content, and we weren't supposed to be producing content. You know, we were supposed to relaunch and have a chat room for producers and a job board, you know, so producers can find jobs and a really nice, simple site. But when the pandemic hit, you know, we kind of jumped in ahead of launch and started just trying to get information out to producers, Mm -hmm. like this is where who's filming remotely. This is where you can shoot remotely, like, you know, just any information that we could get out because there wasn't anything for agency producers. And we quickly started doing interviews and creating content and posting it. So we added a place like that on the site. And I just think it kind of defocused a little bit about what we were trying to do as well. So we've gotten a business coach, a manager, actually, and we've gotten a lot of feedback. So we've done a lot of um, surveys and we have about 800 people on the site right now, which is great. We keep charge a low monthly fee of $9.99 a month to be part of it. We've definitely helped a few dozen people get jobs uh, through the pandemic because of the site. And we've helped a lot of people with just general information. But the more people that are going to be on it, the better information that you're going to get. So the hope is that in 2021, we're going to be able to, we'll have, we're going to have a sales team starting and we're hoping that we'll be able to recruit more producers to get on so that they can share information and get help. Like, you know, I'm looking right now for some staff. And so, you know, my hope is I can find them through my own company. Yeah. And, um, 
and it's and that's it. It's just that monthly fee, and then all that information is there for you. So we're going through a redesign phase, uh, and we're excited about it because based on the feedback, we got a lot of really great direct feedback on how to make things just easier for the user. And so we're going to be implementing that at the beginning of next year. I believe we're going to go into more of a forum-based chat, yeah. individual chat. Um, and it, then from there, you know, we're working on building out profiles so that if you're applying for a job, because we're going to build out a proper job board, then your profile is there with all your information. So you don't need to go find your LinkedIn or your resume, like your work. It's all in one place. Yeah. Is there. Um, we're working towards um, more, we're going to have more search functionalities and just things that make it easier for the user on the site. Um, so you can search to see who's on there. You can search to see, look for information, maybe in it, see someone's already chatted about something. So you don't have to scroll through Yeah, and uh, we'll be working towards a directory, but more focused for agency producers to do their director searches. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of directories out there, but ours is specific to that. Need. To that. Yeah. So and so for, yeah. And so for those listening, is it all experience levels of producers or if, if someone's like, I want to work for a producer to learn, I have an interest in this. Can they also join? Students, producers, all levels, all genres. And, um, and I think 2021, 2020 was a year of learnings, I think, on all, <laughs> yeah. all people and all industry. And I think 2021 is the year of, you know, of change. So I think rebirth. Yeah. rebirth. So we're going to take a lot of the learnings that we had this year and we'll reapply them into next year. And there is a need for it. People want the community. It's a community. Mm-hmm you know, and it's a platform community and people want that. Okay. But we need to now like focus in. So I've kind of gone back to what I should know because that's, is this key to success is focus. So we're going back words a little bit and focusing first on agency producers. And then, because that's what we know best. And then we're going to let that branch out, take its own root path. Makes sense. So, yeah. The good news is there's no operating expenses, really. Like our overhead is low because we're just like our tech and app stuff, you know, and all the money we make goes back into the tech, creating the tech and we're working. So we don't, we're not depending on it for our salaries. So the good news is we can take our time with this, but we do also want to make sure our customers are happy at every step along the way. So we're trying to get there fast, but also not so fast that we make any more mistakes. Yeah. Well, I think it sounds like a wonderful place, like you said, to create community. I'll definitely link to it for anyone listening who wants to check it out. Um, Some great stuff in there. I got to be a part of the demo this summer and enjoyed what I saw. It's really cool. We all know that everybody's path is so unique. And for every one person that says do this, another person says don't ever do that. So I'm curious if there's anyone listening who is, is interested in mirroring uh, your career choices, right? Who thinks def- definitely an agency producer, like that's what I want to do, whether they're at the beginning of their career or maybe in the middle of their career, what advice would you give for them? Um, I would say, you know, just try to, you know, first you just focus on, on what part, if you want to be an agency producer, focus on, you know, go, first of all, join the pool house because we can, there's jobs being posted. So <laughs> can, and if you're a student, absolutely, you know, contact yeah. us because we're take on interns as well. Um, but I think it's like, you know, focus your searches and what you need and where, what, where your job platforms on being, getting into an agency. 
And, you know, just in order, and, and, and for me, it's, it's really simple. It's, it's do the fucking work. That's it. Just do the fucking work. <laughs> it applies to doing, taking care of your mental health, to, you know, taking care of your physical health, to taking care of your relationship, your family, and your work. Do the fucking work. I'm actually writing a book called Do the Fucking Work on My Journey. So it's, 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 it's that. It's just that simple. This has been such a treat. Thank you so much for your time, for your vulnerability, for sharing the space, for going there with us. Um, you're a gem, and I, I think, I'm so grateful that to have known you this long. <laughs> no, this was fun. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. Thank you so much. Yay! Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. You can find the show at angleonproducers.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Beijos.